Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app or visit amazon.com slash comedy ad free. That's amazon.com slash comedy ad free. And catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Mari Llewellyn, and I'm the host of the Pursuit of Wellness podcast. A couple of years ago, I went through a huge transformation. And although I got a lot of attention for losing weight and discovering my passion for weightlifting, there was a lot more to that before and after than what a few pics could ever capture. On the Pursuit of Wellness, you can expect tons of information from experts about optimizing your body and mind. I'll also be sharing some triumphs and struggles from my own personal life. I'm on this journey with you, so you can definitely count on my podcast to give you that weekly dose of encouragement we all need as we pursue things that make us feel our very best inside and out. Tune into the Pursuit of Wellness every week wherever you listen to podcasts. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes Podcast. I'm Taylor. And I'm Morgan. And happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It has been a long time, Taylor. It has. We have actually talked. Oh, yeah. And I was going to bring, we just recorded our piping hot goss for Patreon and I was going to bring this up, but I wanted to save it. Yesterday, guys, this is fucking record breaking. Taylor didn't FaceTime me. <laughs> Not once. Nope. And there was one point where I was like, maybe something's wrong. Is she okay? And then I was like, no, she's fine, Morgan. She's fine. So then I didn't get a single text. So we texted a little bit during yeah. the night when I was at work. I didn't get a single text until I think it was 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And it was just a TikTok. And I was like, something's something's wrong. <laughs> something's She's wrong. mad at me. Oh, my God. No, no. <laughs> I need to know what was going through your mind where you were like, I'm not calling Morgan. Let's tonight. walk through my day. So long story short of what I've been doing this week is Monday was our first day back from Easter break. By the way, we're recording this a week before it comes out on a win- on the Wednesday. So the day before you guys listen to 133. And this is how it's going to be for the next three weeks. Let's go ahead and let you guys know the next three weeks are going to be pre-recorded. So we're not going to be aware of like any current events that are going on clearly because we're recording because i'm going to italy she's going to italy bitches Bitches. so don't call don't text i'll be here if you need me if it's an emergency (laughs) but i'm also dedicating these two weeks to my own form of vacation which may or may not be revamping the garden in the back oh shit we're bringing back the tomatoes Here we go. So on Monday, we had just gotten back from both visiting our families for Easter Sunday night. Yeah, good time. You have a good weekend. Yeah, we went out. We did a little like impromptu bachelorette party for Maddie. Oh, that's that's so fun. Italy, she's getting married, and it was a lot of fun. We had a party buzz, and I was. It looks so fun. Yummy. Your hair looks great, by the way. Yeah, we both are rocking a new do. Oh yeah, we love it. I love Morgan's. 
hers looks great too. I'm trying to integrate. It's just like the first time you've had color. So I think it's just taking you a second. Yeah. I'm trying to integrate like light colors into my hair from it being jet black for the last four years. Literally so long. Since your wedding. Since I think you're after your wedding. That's when you went. That's when I dyed it. Yeah. So I'm I'm like really struggling mentally with it. And I'm trying to let my hair grow out. But it does look like it is growing. It's growing so fast. It's just not growing fast enough. Yeah. I just trimmed it too, it beneath my collarbones and I put it to right above again just to get like the dead ends off. Mm-hmm. You know what's crazy is I actually trimmed mine too. It looks so good trimmed, but it looks longer. How? I don't I guess because it's trimmed. And you know what, guys? My I love hair grows so fast. Like if it anyone does. doesn't know already, I have gray hairs. Yep. 25 plethora of gray hairs right smack dab <laughs> in the middle of my head. And it's, it's a curse. I don't know from who. My parents both swear it's not them, but it's got to be one of them. One of them has one of them. And but both of them are like, no, not until we were like 50. Oh, my God. Okay, so then it was definitely Bucky because no one noticed it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or it's just stress, which it makes sense. I got it. I started getting it when I was in college. But either way, I had just gotten my roots touched up, dyed whenever my brother got married. So the weekend in March, the beginning of March. So I'm not even a month out. My gray hair's. Okay. Also, I will pull a couple, you know, she does be doing that. I do be doing that. And people say it's a myth. It's not a fucking myth. It comes back. Yeah, it comes back hard and fast. Three. I had I would say probably like thumb length in a month worth of like new grays that have sprouted. That's sick. No, that means I grew at least two inches. That's what I'm saying. That's sick. It's just crazy to me. It's just like you can't maintain it. So then I thought I was like, okay, well, I've got to at one point or that point, I just was getting my roots done. Any blonde that was at the bottom of my hair had just been there previously. Yeah. Like I haven't had any, hello, lightener or highlights into my hair in a couple years, I yeah. would say. And it just wasn't helping my whole gray situation. Whenever my hair is lighter, it hides that a lot better than having yeah. dark roots. So that's why we went back to a little bit lighter. And so I could just be a little- I love light in your A hair. little light for Italy. I love light in the hair. I know. I'll never forget whenever I got hired onto my job at my interview- I was like blonde, like not yeah. blonde, but like really light. Like how you used to And when her. I came back, it was like dark hair. So when they went to find me after like my training, like my new bosses, they were like, hello, Morgan, we're looking for Morgan. And I was like, oh, that's me. And they're like, we're pretty sure you were blonde. <laughs> no, literally you were. No, I love when you have blonde in your hair. Yeah. I don't know if that's just because like that's how I met you and that's how I knew you. Yeah. But. But it was a good like couple years of like no color. No, I think yeah. it was just like good to do that. Yeah. You just will like maintain your yeah. natural color yeah so we did talk monday was more planning starting notes and i worked until probably like six got up nine to six did that and then i was like i'm gonna go lay down because this is the only night i'm gonna get to rest because we decided to record today instead of Mm -hmm. tuesday so then yesterday i woke up and popped my addy bitch i was in a trance yesterday working reading doing all this stuff thinking of things but then i kept like getting so distracted on social media Mm -hmm. so then i was like well i'm annoying myself so then i was like just fucking finish these notes and go sit in there i didn't have time to really talk to i don't think i talked to arletta yesterday until the evening and normally her and I talk I need in the to call her because I think we both probably feel a little neglected. Well, we talked this morning. She was in the garden all day yesterday. That's why I'm like, I'm going to garden now. Oh, yeah. Uh, there it is. Yeah. She. So I ended up calling her yesterday evening. I was like, yo. Yeah. I just was like grinding so hard. I didn't like didn't talk to anyone. I think then I look up and it's six o'clock. I went up to the living room and finished working till like eight. The only thing I sent you yesterday was like, this is what I've done. If you have any questions, call me. That was it. Yeah. I was done. 
I was and just I was, done. I was really expecting you to call me though, because you'll usually light a fire, especially when yeah. you share a case. You light a fire under my ass to get it done. Yeah. But there was nothing. It was silence. And therefore, I didn't I'm want on a couch like this. <laughs> snoring my ass off wasting my entire evening away because oh i had no no motivation because you didn't call me bitch i just was so done with it too oh my god this i don't we, like, we aren't we're unsure where this episode's gonna go yeah we have like all these notes down but we just don't know which one's gonna be better but let me tell you right now if this episode happens to be anthrax or yeah if patreon if you're listening to anthrax whichever one it is this past saturday right just know that i hate it it was just hard. It was it was especially so hard. hard for you, like having to explain science stuff because like I can't even oh, pronounce I just it. Bit the fucking bullet. Yeah, no. I was literally. like literally fuck that. They no. don't know what it means. I don't know what it means. It, it doesn't that's what I told Morgan last time. I was like, at this point, it doesn't even need to be explained because yeah. like th- how the fuck are we gonna explain it? And why does anybody need to know right. the science side of this bullshit? It's the it was the type of frustration of like where you want to just like Ah, like scream at the top of your lungs pull your hair out like that's how like over it was I was with it that's open my laptop at first and I looked at it I said "Mm -mm." closed it started up another episode or another set of notes and then I was like fuck this one too and then I closed it fell asleep on the couch next thing I know Aaron's home and he was being cute. So I was like, I'm going to keep sleeping because like he's being so cute. Like, yeah, I love that. Chill for a second. And then I like woke up and he was like still being cute. So I was just like, let me go lay with Aaron for a little bit. Yeah. And then I was like, I got to do my notes. Yeah, no. And I was like, Aaron, I have to watch that documentary for the 19th time again. No, for the 100th time. And he time. was like, are you fucking kidding me? No, really. That Logan was just like, okay, well, whenever you're done rewatching shit, go ahead and let me know and I'll come out here. But when I finished my portions of it, I was so done. Anyways, there was something, guys, that I heard the other day and I was like, I have got to fucking tell you guys about this. It was such a great topic. It was a question. And oh, that would have been it fun. Was, and I want to say it had something to do with something that's red or fire because I keep seeing red and orange and yellow in my mind. And I have no idea. Sunset? So I was just about to say, like, do you think it's a sunset, sunrise? Like, but I wouldn't ask, do you prefer sunset or sunrise? I'm not going to ask that. (laughs) I actually prefer sunrise. (laughs) I actually prefer, it depends where I'm at. That is true. If I'm at the beach, I want the sunset. See, I think sunrise at a beach is prettier. I like sunrise in the mountains. I like seeing it come over all the dewy Mm -hmm. things. Like when we're in Tennessee, I love it. I do love it. I love them both. Here we are talking about sunrise, sunset. Tell us what your is. Okay, guys, again, just to let you guys know, on episode 133, we started our One Good Thing Challenge. Yeah, we've been so good, actually. We have been doing so good. I put up, I, <laughs> did you see the Instagram story? What? Yeah, I did see it. Yeah. What did I say the other day? I was at home for the weekend and you were like, one good thing. I was like, love my hair. And then the next day you texted me, one good thing. I said, love my hair. And, and I like, said, you, you can't said, do that twice. <laughs> you can't do that every day, babe. You can't do that one twice. And I'm like, okay, well, I do love. So the what we've got going on is at 1030 every morning, we get a notification, one good thing. And we text it to each other. I put it on our story this morning. I still, I don't think I've given mine. No, I gave mine. I don't remember what it was. You got your shit done yesterday. I got my shit done yesterday. I was proud of that. And I was able to What was mine that I was excited to record? One good thing. Immediate regret. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No, it wasn't. (laughs) So anyways, yeah, we've been trying our best not to complain. I don't feel like we complained about this. No, and you know, we are really like negative bitches. Like point blank period. You guys know that. Yeah. And so we, I feel like it's, I mean, just look at that four days of five days of doing it and I'm already like I love recording yeah I feel a lot better and like my face has been broken out and I haven't like dwelled on it too much Mm -hmm. because I'm not talking about it so it's not on my mind like yeah no my face is like the worst broken out it's ever been yeah and like today I'm gonna go home I'm gonna clean 
oh my God, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to clean too. Bring it in, bitch. That's what I said. I was like, I'm going to clean when I get done with this today. On that note, if you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up. And let's get creepy. Okay, I remembered what the thing was that I wanted to talk about that I can't remember. And I remember why fire came into it now. It makes no fucking sense that this is what I associate it with. It was Texas. <laughs> I'm so scared. So, okay, this is a question that I have first prior to this. At your school growing up, what did you guys do at the beginning of the day? So the Pledge of Allegiance. And then did you... We what had else? a homeroom. Did you do what, like a moment of silence? No. Okay, so you just did the pledge and then you were done. Sat down and you rush your homework to get done. Exactly. Yeah. So I did the same thing, but we had a moment of silence. So we did the pledge and then we had a 30 second moment of silence that we did my entire life growing up. So this one thing came across my For You page and it was like, do y'all know how a morning in Texas works at school? They say the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag and then they say a second Pledge of Allegiance to the Texas flag. What? There's a second Texas has its own pledge and everyone grew up in Texas saying the American pledge and then the Texas pledge. And they had literally everybody was like so shook that grew up in Texas. Like I had no idea. No other state did this. I don't know if there, it's really no other state. That's culty. No, that's fucking weird. That's it, why Texas is slowly drifting away from. No, y'all have always US. been trying to yeah. su succeed or whatever it is from the U U.S. Let me read it to you. Let me find it. It, it is the funniest and I don't want to offend anyone that's from Texas like I'm sorry if, wait that's fucking it's crazy. just that's weird we did not pledge do that allegiance to the state of Pennsylvania Texas pledge okay here we go <laughs> it says the pledge of allegiance to, or the pledge to the Texas flag honor the Texas flag I pledge allegiance to thee Texas one state under God wait let me see I it. pledge allegiance that's it. Honor the Texas flag. I pledge allegiance to thee, Texas, one state under God, one and indivisible. No, y'all are culty. <laughs> this is so Texas? crazy. I've never. Okay. Are there any other states pledge to the Tennessee flag? I'm dying to see what this is. Oh, my God. Probably flag of Tennessee. I salute thee to thee. I pledge my allegiance with my affection, my service, and my life. Now that one's guilty. <laughs> that I'm serving my life for Tennessee. For Tennessee, not in this economy. No, not in not this, day of age. this economy, baby. I don't think Pennsylvania has one. Kentucky. I pledge my allegiance to the Kentucky flag and to the sovereign state for which it stands, one commonwealth, blessed with diversity. Natural wealth, beauty, and grace from on high. I'm sorry. If your state <laughs> has a pledge of allegiance, they're fucking conceited. <laughs> Kentucky's is so dramatic. I'm so sorry. They're I acting can't. like they're the they're, they're an entire country. I feel offended as a Pennsylvanian who does not. Oh, have Louisiana. Has Louisiana has flag. one. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the state of Louisiana and to the motto for which it stands. A state under God, united in purpose and ideals. Confident that justice shall prevail for all of those abiding here. Okay, Louisiana. That was kind of hard. That was that went hard as fuck. That went that, that went, was that was Cajun. So, that was Cajun. I feel like the trend here is Southern states have pledges. Michigan has one. 
Okay. Michigan says, I pledge my allegiance to the flag of Michigan and to the state for which it stands. Two beautiful peninsulas united by a bridge of steel. She is beautiful. Where she is equal grace. opportunity and justice is our ideal. That's pretty dope. Okay. Michigan. Michigan. Mississippi has one. New Mexico has one. Oh. oh, this is interesting. I salute the flag of the state of New Mexico and the Zia symbol, the Za symbol. No idea. Perfect friendship among united cultures. Okay, you know what I learned about New Mexico the other day? What? Completely side tangent. You know how Arizona and New Mexico, they were one state and mm -hmm. then they were divided in half? There was like a, I learned that there was like so much fucking drama with that. And really? like people in New Mexico being like, no, we want to be a part of Arizona. And people in Arizona being like, no, we want to be a part of New Mexico. And so they like kept changing the I borders. I wonder if this is what happened down. with North and South Dakota. <laughs> oh, my God. I wonder if they have one. Let's look. Or West Virginia and Virginia or South and North Carolina. South Carolina's. Well, OK, here's North Carolina's. I salute the flag of North Carolina and pledge to the old North state love, loyalty and faith. South Carolina's is, I salute the flag of South Carolina and pledge to the Palmetto State love, loyalty, and faith. They just tweaked it a bit. Oh, my God. They just fucking tweaked Slay. it. Oh, South Dakota. What do they say? We are real. <laughs> Believe us. Taylor. Salute the swear flag. Swear to God, we're real. I pledge loyalty and support to the flag and state of South Dakota. Land of sunshine. Okay, Where? Florida. Fake. Fake Florida, <laughs> allegedly. Okay, not the Sunshine State. Yeah, literally. Land of sunshine, land of infinite variety. Yeah, aliens. Thank you for confirming it. All right, guys. Infinite variety, aka we're not real. <laughs> aka we're not fucking real. That's crazy. Oh, Virginia no is interesting. I salute the Virginia flag with reverence and patriotic devotion to the mother states and statesmen, which it represents the old dominion where liberty and independence were born. DC. Fucking. <laughs> They're place. like, hey, okay, well, we're like kind of the shit state. North Dakota so. doesn't have one, I don't believe. Flat's a big flex on Virginia. <laughs> literally. Straight flexing. Virginia said, everybody go fuck yourself. This literally is literally where independence was born. This I actually begged the independence. Yeah, actually, let's talk <laughs> about Philadelphia. How they do it. Let doing. me actually rep PA real quick. <laughs> yeah, hold on. Let's bring that one up. Are you, I don't think Virginia is ready for PA to enter the chat. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of drama with that one. Okay. Anyways, we'll get to the episode now. Bye. Bye. So today we're bringing you guys a crossover case. Yes. Between Margie and I. And this is the 2001 anthrax attacks. Which <laughs> I really like I knew about, but like not to this extent. Exactly. Until this past week. Right. And if you're watching on YouTube, literally ignore my hair. It's really hot in here. And I'm fighting for my life to not pull it all the way up or just take off my shirt. Okay. So let's jump right into it. On October 2nd, 2001, Robert or Bob Stevens went to the hospital for what felt like severe flu symptoms in Boca Raton, Florida. He had just come back from a trip to North Carolina when his symptoms began on September 29th. Bob and his wife didn't really think much of this flu-like situation at first, but it continually got worse. It went from being a typical low-grade fever, nausea, shortness of breath, and body aches to profusely sweating, high fever, redness in the face, and Bob being pretty much incoherent. 
When he went to the hospital on October 2nd, doctors concluded that his symptoms were not flu related and began to believe that he may have meningitis. So in order to diagnose him officially, though, they had to run a lot of tests. It was through these tests that they realized that this was much more serious. Bob Stevens had developed pulmonary anthrax. The CDC was immediately brought in to confirm this diagnosis as it is an extremely infectious disease that requires rapid treatment and quarantine. And they confirmed that, yeah, it was anthrax. On October 5th, just three days after being hospitalized, 63-year-old Bob Stevens died, making him the first death from anthrax on U.S. soil in 25 years. But how did this happen? What exactly is anthrax and how does it spread? And I'll get to that. But I just want to note here that for this hospital to make a diagnosis like that in 2001, they weren't looking for it. Dude, this is the so craziest that's part. Huge. The craziest thing is it, it, it just so happened by chance of God that there was an infectious disease specialist at this specific hospital. No, no other hospital in the area. Wow. Yeah. And saw the test results and they brought them in, this dude in, and he diagnosed it. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Right. So anthrax, what is it? Anthrax is one of the most dangerous bacteria on our planet. It's commonly found in soil, specifically in the regions of Central and South America, Central and Southwestern Asia, Southern and Eastern Europe, and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Caribbean. Anthrax is the result of the bacteria known as Bacillus anthracis. Bacillus anthracis produces a non-active dormant spores, and these spores can live in its environment like soil, for a very long time. I'm talking years, sometimes even decades. When the spores are dormant, they are not harmful. But when they are activated, that's a different story. These spores can be turned on or activated once they reach a place that's really rich in waters and sugars and other nutrients, kind of like the body of a living thing, an animal or a human. Once activated, these spores turn into these active growing cells. And at that stage, they can multiply, spread out within the body, and produce toxins, resulting in severe illness and, most cases, death. Without vaccination, domestic animals are at a risk for being poisoned with anthrax because there's no telling what spores contaminate soil, plants, and water. Right. Like, spores are microscopic. It's as simple as breathing in or ingesting these spores to become infected. Humans can be infected in the same way, breathing in those spores, eating food or drinking water that's been contaminated or grown in that soil, or having an open wound as small as a scrape, like a scratch, that allows for those spores to enter the body. Anthrax has been around for a long time. It's believed to have originated in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Some believe that during the 10 plagues, anthrax may have actually been the fifth. Mm. It wasn't until the 1800s that there was a significant discovery in anthrax. While the symptoms of what we know as anthrax poisoning today were around prior to the 1800s, there was no scientific explanation. In the 1800s, doctors noticed a link between the disease and the animal hair industry. Oh. Therefore, an what we know today as anthrax was then known as wool sorters disease. So the people who were employed to sort oh through wool God. to make clothes and yeah. fabrics and things like that. By the mid-1800s, scientists made the connection with wool sorters disease and the bacteria that was seen in blood that looked like these rod-shaped bodies. They then identified this bacteria and gave it the name Bacillus anthracis. I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, so sorry. 
<laughs> because of this finding, cases of anthrax in animals and humans were well documented in the United States, Britain, and Germany in the early 1900s. In 1937, a man named Max Stern created an anthrax live spore vaccine for animals. And in most countries, this exact vaccine is still used for animals. Cases of anthrax in animals began to decline as a result of this vaccine. During the entire 20th century, as a result, there were only 18 cases of inhalation anthrax in the U.S. Wow. The vaccine did alter in the U.S. in 1944 when they began to use penicillin as a form to treat anthrax. But it wasn't until the 1950s that the first anthrax vaccine for humans was created. This was then updated in the 70s, and it's actually the same vaccine that's used today. Concentrated anthrax, though, is a different story. Anthrax as a bioweapon poses as one of the most lethal bioweapons on humans. The first documented use of anthrax as a bioweapon was by the German army in World War I, where they used anthrax to infect the livestock of allied nations. Oh, shit. In response, the freaking Geneva Protocol hey, Geneva. was created in 1925. This prevented, quote, asphyxiating, poisonous, or other gases or bacteriological methods of warfare from being used. But this did absolutely nothing because it did not prohibit the production or the research of biological agents, leaving lots of room for countries and scientists to play around. Research on anthrax as a biological weapon wasn't terminated in the United States until 1969 when President Nixon ended what was called the United States Biological Weapons Program. In 1972, almost every country signed that Biological Weapons Convention. This was a treaty that prohibited the, quote, development, production, and stockpiling of biological and toxin weapons. On top of the treaty, signed countries had to destroy biological weapons that were in existence, and this included anthrax. Over 100 countries signed that treaty, including the Soviet Union, the UK, the United States, Brazil, and Iraq. But anthrax was and still is able to be studied, just not for the purpose of biological weapons. So going back to Bob Stevens, at first the CDC and infectious disease specialists determined that this was likely just a freak accident. When Bob had gone to North Carolina, it was for a hiking trip, which they assumed is where he likely contracted it. But because he had gotten anthrax through inhalation, his workplace had to be investigated. Bob Stevens was a photojournalist or editor at The Sun, which is owned by American Media Company or Incorporated. So American media offices in Boca Raton, which is where he worked, were completely tested. On October 8th, anthrax was found at the Boca Raton American Media offices. The office was shut down and Bob's co-workers were immediately tested. Two of his colleagues were found to have been exposed. As we can all assume, this was extremely concerning for U.S. citizens to learn and was heavily reported on by the media. It was so concerning that on October 9th, President George W. Bush addressed it, saying that this was an isolated incident. This is nothing that you need to worry about. On October 12th, 2001, seven days after Bob Stevens' death and three days after this announcement, that all changed. A New York City employee for NBC contacted the FBI after opening a letter postmarked from Trenton, New Jersey on September 18th. So that's when it was sent. Inside this envelope, there was a letter that read, and by the way, I'm going to try my best to put these on Instagram, but I'm, I have to remember to do that. So... Bear with me. If I forget, will someone let me know? Thank you. Inside of the envelope, there was a letter that read 9-11-01. This is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. But when the employee opened this letter, 
a sand-like substance came out of it. It was anthrax. Three days later, U.S. Senator Tom Daschle of South Dakota received a similar letter that was postmarked on October 9th from Trenton, New Jersey. And this was opened by his aide, Grant Leslie, meaning that this letter was sent two weeks after the first. And this one read, 09-1101, you cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. And just like the first, it also had the sand-like substance, anthrax. It was then discovered that the same exact letter was also sent to U.S. Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont, but it had been lost in the mail and was not found until like two weeks later. This is significant for three reasons. Number one, Daschle at the time was the Senate Majority Leader and Patrick Leahy was the head of the judiciary. I can never say this word. Judiciary. Do just judiciary. Thank you. Committee. <laughs> Both from the Democratic Party, meaning that leaders from the U.S. were now being targeted by these letters. Number two, these were not the only letters. There were two waves of them. And this is how they believed Bob Stevens was poisoned. They don't have the original letter that he had, but they are pretty positive that he had one. Because after that NBC employee came forward, all other media networks are like investigating their mail rooms. And it was discovered that in the first wave, the one that was shipped from Trenton, New Jersey on September 18th, there were actually five. So these letters were sent to Boca Raton at the American Media, which is where Bob Stevens was, ABC News in New York City, CBS News in New York City, NBC News in New York City, and the New York Post in New York City. The second wave, which was also shipped out of Trenton, New Jersey, but on October 9th, like I said, three weeks after the first wave, was feared to have more letters because they only found two, meaning that the investigators had no idea where these letters would be, who they are targeting, but they knew that there were likely more and they needed to warn the public. And the third and final reason why this is such a big, significant deal is because at the time, national security was already at an all time high because of the September 11th terrorist attacks that had happened not even a month prior and because of how dangerous anthrax is slash how easily it can be passed along and contracted. Basically, the entire U.S. Postal Service, a.k.a. all Americans, were at risk for anthrax poisoning. The anthrax attacks began just one week after 9-11 terrorist attacks in 2001, during a time where more threats were being made to the U.S. about more attacks from al-Qaeda, a.k.a. Osama bin Laden. Americans were already on edge, and this new wave of terrorist attacks with the letters making the threats they were obviously caused for panic. Panic ensued by the masses, with the media publicly stating that this was a second wave of a terroristic attack on the U.S. and al-Qaeda was to blame. Citizens of the United States were terrified that they would be the next victim of the anthrax attack. Because it wasn't narrowed down on specific targets, therefore everybody was at risk of opening the wrong piece of mail at the wrong time. Because of how the mailing system works at the postal office, just one contaminated letter could spread throughout the entire facility. So let's break it down. Once a piece of mail arrives at a post office facility, it runs through a high-speed processing machine. This machine acts as a way of processing, canceling, and sorting the mail. Each envelope, once passed through the sorting center, is squeezed together by these rollers, like completely compressing that envelope. Anthrax particles are microscopic, meaning once that envelope was compressed, 
it was possible for those particles or spores to escape that sealed envelope and contaminate the entire machine, aka contaminating every other piece of mail that were to pass through that same machine after the fact. These machines sort through hundreds of thousands of letters a day. It is high speed. And because of this, these spores being compressed so abruptly and quickly, they were capable of spreading out also into the air, infecting the entire facility, infecting every single postal worker in that room. And even to aid the spore spread, the way to clean these machines was a routine of blowing air into them. Oh my God. Spreading those micron sized particles everywhere. And this is exactly what happened. Postal workers were now on the front line of this terrorist attack, leaving some employees ill for the rest of time with major respiratory issues while taking the lives of others. But we will come back to that because it was extremely handled, extremely fucking wrong. And nobody was worried about the suppressed community of African-Americans that filled the majority of those postal work working offices. 100%. We're going to get to that at the end. They continued to work, these postal workers, in fear of the situation for 10 days. Wow. Until the postmaster general shut down the Washington office that dealt with the senator's letter. So the letter that went to Senator Daschle, it came from this facility, as well as other surrounding post offices in the D.C. area. They brought in full hazmat teams to test for biohazard contamination. And this threw the postal workers into this state of shock. How could they allow them to continue working in khakis and polos when 10 days, 10 days after the incident, a full-blown hazmat team rolled in? Right. Government facilities and others where the letters arrived were shut down. It went into hazmat protocol within two hours of an anthrax exposure. But they allowed for this postal office to remain open for 240 hours. So fucked up. Testing showed, specifically at the Navy Mail Station in D.C., that after the initial field test, a, quote, small amount of biological pathogens, possibly anthrax, were present in the air. Eight air samples were sent off for testing at Fort Detrick, where the sample showed a spore count of 138. It's believed that to become infected by anthrax, you would have to breathe in about 8,000 to 10,000 spores. And there's only red 138. But this test was done over a week after the initial anthrax letter would have been compressed and processed in their facility. Mm -hmm. The media followed the story of how postal workers were at a higher risk for anthrax poisoning during the attacks. But they quickly changed the focus back to the United States government as being the main target. President Bush was constantly making public addresses, warning the United States citizens that we were and currently are under attack by those behind 9-11, which not confirmed at the time, but believed to be al-Qaeda. People began panic buying gas masks in fear of exposure to this biological terrorist attack. Sales in the U.S. and even in the U.K. were at an all-time high because people believed it was the only way to protect themselves from a biological attack. Right. And I say U.K. because other major countries actually were receiving these fake anthrax letters in the mail around the same time ours came. Well, yeah, and they were also getting similar to 9-11 threats. Right. Like this was like worldwide. These were sent to their government officials, but they were all usually filled with like unharmful powders like baby or baking powder. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. That's insane. By November 21st, 22 people had developed anthrax infections, 11 of which who were in life-threatening condition and five of which who had died as a result of the anthrax letters. 
So let's walk through each of these. Bob Stevens, which we have already discussed, two postal workers, Thomas Morris Jr. and Joseph Kersing, and then two civilians who were exposed by unknown sources. Kathy Guyon, who was a Vietnamese immigrant living in the Bronx at the time and had to work in the city, so was constantly taking public transport, which is why they think maybe she got it. And then Otilly Ludgren, who was a 94-year-old widower of a prominent judge from Oxford, Connecticut. And they have no idea how she got it. Like, the only thing they can assume is that it was up against both of their mail or maybe they had gone somewhere in public that had some sort of... Of residue. Of residue on it. With all these infections and deaths, still, investigators had no idea who it was that they should be looking for. They needed to narrow down their search in order to rule out people and in order to make their suspect pool smaller. So they started by taking a closer look at the source, a.k.a. the letters. Now, also, I do want to mention, like, at the time, Al-Qaeda or in all these like other groups that had been claiming 9-11, but we didn't know for sure at the time, they were all being like, we sent the letters, we sent the letters, we sent the letters. But they had no proof that they had actually done it, whereas they were giving proof for the 9-11 attacks. So we, we had no proof to say that they had done this, that this was actually a terrorist attack. So the FBI was still having to investigate as if it was a domestic situation. So either way, they were able to track the movements of every single one of these letters and trace them all the way back to a very specific mailbox from Princeton, New Jersey. They also had a closer look at these handwritten messages, but we're going to come back to that. There was very little actual physical evidence that investigators had to find the source of these letters. I'm talking no fingerprints, no real leads, no identifying features on any of them. But then, just like they did in the 96 Atlanta bombings, they shifted their focus to the substance itself, so the anthrax. They needed the help of scientists because this was the first bioterror attack on the U.S. in history, and we were unprepared. Like, this was terrifying, especially with what we were going through at the time with 9-11. On October 15th, the day that Dashiell's letter was found, the FBI immediately sent it to Fort Detrick for analysis. This is the U.S. Army Futures Command installation in Frederick, Maryland, that was actually the center of U.S. biological weapons programs from 43 to 69. It houses the U.S. Army Medical Research and Development Command through Biodefense Agency, or USAMRID, which they all say like USAMRID. So that's what you'll hear us call it many times throughout this. Also, the Frederick National Laboratory for Cancer Research, the National Interagency Confederation for Biological Research, the National Interagency Biodefense Campus, and the National Center for Medical Intelligence. The FBI was working every angle that they could, but with limited knowledge of anthrax, they turned to those scientists who worked with it daily for help, specifically at USAMRED and specifically the scientists who were working directly with the powders from the letters. This is when they learn about something called elongated morphology. Under the microscope, the bacteria of the anthrax used showed a rod-like morphology. Think of like a centipede. Each rod or bacterium was then coated with this smooth monoamino acid shell, and this shell would block T cells from recognizing it as a pathogen, which is how this version of anthrax survived. So basically what it would do is once it infected the body, it put this mask over top of itself to trick the cells in the body to believe that these anthrax spores were harmless. This morphology and defense mechanism was known as the AIM strain. And only 15 labs in the United States had the AIM strain on their property, including USAMRED. 
But even though it seems as if that narrows down the starting location, it doesn't. Because there was no way to tell where the strain was originating from. But what they were able to tell with this knowledge was that somebody who has contact with that lab-grade AIM strain was their suspect. AKA, it was a scientist that they were looking for. So they now knew who they were looking for. They just needed to narrow down that morphology of the specific AIM strain to see if they could make the list of those 15 labs just a little bit smaller. So they plated the anthrax onto a Petri dish to observe the spores. And this is when they noticed something. Some of the anthrax spores had different morphology. Check mark. This was how they were going to figure out not just who had the AIM strain, but who had the AIM strain in the anthrax letters. And sure enough, all of the samples that had those different morphs of the AIM strain were located at USAMRED, the laboratory that was working one-on-one with the FBI to solve this case. It was in front of their face the entire time. USAMRED scientists were now shitting their pants. They were afraid that by helping, they were going to be able to be tied up into this attack when in reality, maybe they had nothing to do with it. Right. The biggest help the FBI had was a man named Bruce Edward Ivins. He was the most skilled microbiologist at the laboratory, and he broke down the morphology for them. He got them to the conclusion that this was the AIM strain. At the time, he was working on anthrax vaccine technology and was actually a co-inventor on two different U.S. patents for the anthrax vaccine. As a microbiologist, Anthrax was Bruce's baby, and he had some of the best knowledge there was surrounding anthrax at a microscopic level. But he was an odd person, but normal for a geeky scientist. He was extremely overbearing, asking personal questions to people that were not needed. He was really just like your socially awkward guy that Mm -hmm. was a nerd. Yeah. Like point blank period. He loved science. Yeah. He talked fast. He had trouble carrying normal conversations about anything but science. He lived in the lab, spending any extra time that he could there. And even though he built this relationship with the FBI early on, he still worked at the laboratory where the morphs of the AIM strain were at, meaning he was a potential suspect and he needed to be cleared. The FBI then required all scientists that were dealing with the AIM strain to submit sample tubes of the strain that they were working with day to day. Under subpoena, all the scientists at USAMRED, including Bruce, had to go into their collection sample each of their tubes, and it was then sent to a man named Paul Keim in his laboratory, the TGen, or Translation Genomics Research Institute, mm. or DNA Analysis and Long-Term Storage. But when they did an analysis of the morphs, none of those submitted samples from USAMRED were a match to the morphs on the letters, meaning scientists at USAMRED and Bruce were in the clear. Bruce led the FBI on a scientist hunt, giving up multiple scientists who he suspected were involved in the anthrax attacks, informing the FBI that these two scientists routinely worked with the AIM strain. And on top of that, they made serial dilutions of that strain, which in return, they could then potentially come up with a negative result when they matched them. It was at this point that Bruce was asked by the FBI to aid in the investigation, and he was tons of help. Now, the FBI realized that they were laying in bed with their suspect, so they needed to figure out who they could trust, and that person was Bruce. He gave them to the point, he got them to the point where they were. He had honestly given them his findings, explained it to them on a very deep level, and while doing so, he made himself a potential suspect. But would that person that actually did this have told them the truth? There's no way. They could trust Bruce, and they had no reason not to, 
So he became their science guy. The investigators asked Bruce if there was anyone in his lab that he believed would actually be capable of doing this, both physically and mentally. And he said yes, he knew of many, but he pointed the finger at very specific people. He explained that he knew of two people that would have the knowledge and the character required to have prepared and sent the anthrax letters, one of which was actually a former employee. And his name was Stephen Hatfill. He became the main person of interest in the anthrax attacks. He was fired in 1999 after violating lab procedures. Then Stephen went and he got a job working as a government contractor, but lost his security clearance for that job soon after. And what really stuck out to the investigators was this part of the timeline. He had lost his security clearance on August 23rd, 2001. Just a week literally a week before 9-11, before September 18th when the first wave went out. A study that he had commissioned also described a fictional terrorist attack using bioweapons. And he was angry, like pissed at the government for losing his job. Three different polygraphs were performed on him. And each time it was indicated that he was lying. His home was searched. And when I say searched, I should probably say raided on two different occasions. Meanwhile, Stephen continually denied any and all involvement in the anthrax attacks. His name still, though, was blasted into the media. Stephen was very obviously under 24 hours surveillance from the FBI. They made it clear they even one of agent even ran over his foot because he was following so close. Crazy. <laughs> and the media was all over him at all times. What this all is saying is that the investigation was solely focused on him at this point. And he's only a person of interest. It was getting so bad that while investigating him, law enforcement had to protect him. And guys, this went on well into 2003 that Steve Hatfield was publicly accused of the anthrax attacks. Yet the FBI could never present any factual, physical evidence that he was in any way, shape or form involved in the anthrax attacks. Not even to mention the fact that they never named any other of their nine plus other persons of interest. And that ruined someone's life. Exactly. They focused so hard on this one dude, but they had nine others that had the similar same amount of he just seemed to have more motive. Yeah. But that's the that's the difference. And guys, this goes on for five whole years. No one is arrested. Stephen is getting drugged through the mud as a person of interest in the media and his hometown. Every, he can't get a job. Yet there is no movement in this case at all. It is as if the investigation just started five years down the line. No matter how many searches, warrants, interviews, investigations that went down, there was zero movement made in this case. All the while, the government, FBI, etc., everybody that's involved in this is promising to the public this case is active. We're working on it. No big deal. But let's fast forward to September of 2006. The FBI director decides that the anthrax case is stagnant and needs fresh eyes. So he assigns Agent Vince Lisi to the case because it was clear the old investigators had very severely tunnel visioned on Stephen thus derailing the entire investigation. Wasting so much money, time. So much money and resources. time. Resources. And Agent Lisi decided to take it all back to square one, reinvestigate from the very beginning. Some people were not happy about this, but it was imperative to the investigation. And this decision is what led to the 
ultimate breakthrough in this case. Five years doesn't seem like a ton of years in the span of time. But when we look at five years in terms of technological advancements, especially between 2001 and 2006, this was game changing. In the original investigation, they were using DNA to identify the AIM strain, whereas now they could look at genome sequencing. Genomic sequencing is a method that is used to determine the entire genetic makeup of a specific organism or cell type. It determines which genetic variants that said thing possesses. While DNA sequencing basically just takes a piece of the DNA and only looks at the regions of that genome that contain the instructions for RNA, proteins, etc. But basically, genome sequencing is a better more in-depth, accurate version of DNA sequencing. It'll tell you more. What this meant for the anthrax attacks investigation is that they would be able to test the spores that were mailed and essentially give them a DNA fingerprint. If they were successful, they would be able to trace those spores all the way back to what's called the parent sample. This was in no way cheap or easy to do, but this is the most expensive investigation ever carried out by the FBI, so they had a lot of money, support, and time. They were able to successfully do this with the collected spores from the mail. Then they compared these results with every single sample that had been collected in an effort to match that morphology that Bruce Ivins had helped them with in the way beginning. And they were able to trace every single sample from these letters back to a single flask. This flask was labeled RMR 1029. But whose sample was it? What they knew is that this flask containing the parent anthrax spores was created for experiments by a scientist at USAMRID. And it was a resource used by many people, and it was sent to various labs for experiments with anthrax. So though we know where it was created and who created it, many people had access to this at USAMRID, aka where this all started. So everyone there voluntarily once again gave up everything they had to be investigated, access to testing samples, labs, coolers, records, etc., However, this created a lot of paranoia once again, because now every single person that had access to RMR 1029 was a suspect. Again, five years later, they had to prove themselves innocent by giving literally everything, alibis especially. They were able to pretty much clear everyone except for one man, the man that had the most access to RMR 1029, the man who maintained RMR 1029, the man who created RMR 1029. A man they knew and trusted, Bruce Ivins. Bruce Ivins, in the days and weeks and even months leading up to the anthrax attacks, was spending hours in the hot suites, except for one week. He did not enter them. But after that week, again, it was back to back to back hours on the weekdays, weekends. It was nonstop. But then there was this massive drop off and he never went in again. There's this chart and it shows his hours per each month in 2001. And I'm going to try my best to find a copy of this to post on the Insta Carousel because it is really interesting. But basically, he was at an all-time high in September. All-time high. August, August September, September, and October. October. In fact, this hour log of his time in the hot suite served as enough cause, in addition to the RMR 1029 sample, to get a search warrant for Bruce's home. November 1st, 2007, six years later, at 8.10 p.m. at night, outside of the USAMRID, two FBI agents approached Bruce Ivins as he left the facility, and they asked him for an interview. He tries to say, you know, I don't have the time, but the agents stop him because what they knew that he didn't know, at his home, a federal search warrant had been issued. Bruce was clearly confused and flustered, but investigators assured him that he 
and his family would be put into a hotel until the search was completed. So they drove him to his hotel room and they dropped him off. All the while, he was having a very obvious meltdown and was extremely anxious. At his home, they didn't really find much of anything, but especially nothing that was solid evidence proving that he was in any way, shape, or form involved in the anthrax attacks. But when looking at the profile of the type of person that would have carried out the attacks, they knew that if it was Bruce, there would definitely be some sort of trophy or something like that that was kept. Now, in typical true crime cases that were not bioweapon based, investigators would be looking for a small belonging of the victims, certain clothes worn by the suspect or a specific weapon. Whereas this case was so different and honestly such a first that they had no idea exactly what they should be looking for. But the person that did this would know what that thing was and likely try and get rid of it if they felt the investigators were a little too close to finding it, a.k.a. they needed to secretly and very carefully watch Bruce over the next few days. So that is exactly what they did. But before we get into exactly what it was that they had found, let's talk about Bruce. Bruce Edward Ivins was born on April 22nd, 1946 in Lebanon, Ohio, making him in his late 50s, early 60s from start to finish with all of this that's going on. He was the youngest of three brothers belonging to Thomas and Mary Ivins. Thomas was a pharmacist and actually owned his own drugstore, and he was very involved in his community, such as being an active member in both the Chamber of Commerce and the Rotary Club. From the outside looking in, it seemed as if the Ivins were this huge, happy, successful family. But according to Bruce's older brother, C.W., that was not the case. C.W. alleges that his mother, well, their mother, Mary, was extremely violent and physically abusive to all three of her sons and even her own husband. There is an instance described where she hit Thomas so hard over the head with a cast iron skillet that he almost died. And she wouldn't take him to the hospital. She was an abuser through and through, but especially Bruce, she focused on. When she found out she was pregnant with Bruce, unplanned and very much unwanted, she repeatedly threw herself down the stairs trying to abort the pregnancy. Oh my God. And she made sure that Bruce was aware of this his entire life. Despite his home life, Bruce was an, an extremely intelligent young man who excelled in school primarily in science. He participated in many clubs and extracurricular activities <laughs> such as track and cross country, choir, theater, the school yearbook, the newspaper, the scholarship team, National Honor Society, current events team, and every single science fair that the school had hosted. After high school, Bruce Ivins attended the University of Cincinnati studying microbiology, graduating honors with a bachelor's degree in 1968, a master's degree in 1971, and his PhD in 1976. His PhD research was conducted under Dr. Peter F. Bonventure, and his dissertation focused on various aspects of toxicity in certain disease-causing bacteria. The year before obtaining his Ph.D., so in 1975, he married Diane Betched. Betch. 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 Diane Betch. <laughs> Run a daycare out of the couple's home. For 36 years at this point, so 2007, Bruce Ivins had been a scientist, and for 18 years, he had been a senior biodefense researcher at USAMRID. His first bout of research there was actually on Ligonella? Legion? Like, I think it's... Like Eonella. And cholera. Cholera. Cholera, which he completed in 1979. And then as a result of the anthrax outbreak in a Soviet city, he turned all of his attention to anthrax. Why? 
Well, this outbreak took the lives of 105 people. But the source of the outbreak was actually caused by an accidental release from a military facility. Like Morgan said, Bruce Ivins was the co-inventor on two U.S. patent anthrax vaccines, and they had been patented through his employer, a.k.a. the U.S. Army. On March 14, 2003, Ivins, along with two of his other colleagues, received the decoration of exceptional civilian service for helping solve manufacturing technical issues with that anthrax vaccine. This is the highest award that can be given from the department to civilian employees. At the time of the anthrax attacks and the ongoing investigation, Bruce's main project was actually developing a new vaccine. But let's talk about Bruce as a person and who he really was. According to the Netflix documentary, The Anthrax Attacks in the Shadow of 9-11, Bruce was demanding. He often would go down spirals asking too many questions, business and personal, never knowing when to stop and what was his business versus wasn't. His friends and co-workers called this questionnaire the Grand Ivan's Inquiry. And on top of all of this, he was just an overall, like Morgan said, chatty person. For hobbies, he played many instruments such as piano, banjo, and a few others. Bruce was always fooling around or doing odd things like calling people at their homes (laughs) from work. Jeffrey Adamovich, who was Bruce's co-worker at USAMRID, described Bruce as an eccentric person, saying despite being very well known and honorably recognized in his expertise, Bruce was a very down-to-earth, kind, friendly, inviting person. So let's fast forward a little bit. May 14th, 2008. Paul Keim, who is the anthrax scientist that Morgan brought up earlier with the DNA drama fingerprint, was in D.C. for a press conference, and the FBI pulls him in for an interview while he was there. Now, this wasn't your typical one-on-one type of interview or interrogation that you would imagine in cases like this. Instead, Paul's sitting in the room room with like 20 other FBI agents. Paul was not nervous until one of them looked him dead in the eye and said, hey, we're not here to arrest you. I would have been like, really? Sounds like it. Looks like it. Okay. He's like, I didn't even fucking think of that until you just brought it up. But like, thanks. Are you fucking for real right now? Yeah. Either way, the FBI agents began presenting Paul with these emails that they had printed off between himself and Bruce Ivins, questioning him about various phrases, words, times, etc. Almost as if they were trying to get clarification on what exactly it was that they were having a conversation about slash what was being said, trying to get more information in context about these emails. But specifically, if Paul had somehow either knowingly or unknowingly tipped Bruce off about the analysis that was being done on the anthrax samples. So later we find out that Paul was not the only one interviewed about these emails or interactions with Bruce. And pretty quickly, they all realized that the FBI was looking at Bruce as a suspect. Almost every single one of his co-workers, if not all of them, were adamant that, yes, Bruce is fucking weird, but that's just Bruce being Bruce. Like, he's not going to hurt a fly. He's just a little quirky. However, once they learned more about what exactly the FBI had uncovered about their buddy Bruce, their thoughts about him and his quirks kind of shifted. There is this very thin line between being a quirky, eccentric, super friendly guy and being a fucking creep. And Bruce straddled that line. You know how we all have that one co-worker that you think like, yeah, he's a little weird, but you know, like they're that's just how they are. They're fine. Period. Yeah. And then you bring someone from like outside of work to hear a story about this person or meet them in person. And your friend's like, no, that dude's just a creep. Yeah. 
This is how Bruce is. He was obsessive, struggled with his mental health, and he had a dark side, which became very apparent in his emails. Bruce would email his coworkers very personal, unwarranted novels about his life, his experiences, etc., describing these feelings that he gets. And he called the recipients of these emails his secret sharer. Most of the time, all of the time, these co-workers were women. One example is an email that he sent about this tingling sensation in his arms, this metallic taste in his mouth, and his head becoming foggy or dizzy, saying that this sensation scares him, not only because of the physical symptoms that I just described, but instead because of how it affects his mental state. He explains that he becomes angry, upset, withdrawn, quiet, and very paranoid. He claims that during these quote-unquote episodes, he feels as if he is a passenger on a ride who has no control. And once he snaps out of it, he always regrets whatever it is he had done. He goes on to say that it's because of these episodes that on the outside, he forces himself to come off as this super fun, quirky, friendly guy It's to make up for his dark side. Very much given BTK, babe. Yeah. But there is more. It wasn't just his obsession with his secret share that was a massive red flag for investigators. It was his past obsessions, too. So let's take it back to Bruce's time in undergrad at the University of Cincinnati. He had asked this one girl to go out on a date with him. He had a huge crush on her, but she turned him down. Well, she was a KKG or a member of Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority. He became obsessed with KKGs, believing that they were his mortal enemies. Okay. He starts collecting information about every single one of the members, the sorority itself, their rituals, and stalking the on-campus KKG house. Now giving very much Bundy. 100%. One night, he broke into the KKG house and found the cipher that decodes all of that specific chapter's rituals and the sorority as a whole's rituals, and he stole it. I mean, what... I feel like if someone did that at Delta Gamma, we'd been like, all right. I mean, go ahead. What are you you going to find? I mean, it's not that big of a fucking deal. But like back then, it was a bigger deal than it is now, I feel like. Especially what is the 60s? So, I mean, very different. Their rituals were probably a little different. Yeah. Their rituals were like something else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, probably not like a regulation on them hoes. Uh, Nope. Not at all. Anyways, so he steals it and he like puts it uh, everywhere. Everybody releases it to the public. Fast forward to right before he meets his wife, Diane. So like early 70s, 75 is when they got married. So Bruce Ivins had met this woman named Nancy Hagwood, who was studying also microbiology. And she was happened to be a Kappa. Uh-oh. So Bruce tries to become friends with Nancy, but she was married and not really interested in being friends with a man, but specifically Bruce. This pisses him off. So let's fast forward once again. We're now in 1979. At this point, he's been married to Diane for four or so years, yet he was still thinking about Nancy and the Kappas and wanted revenge. Nancy had been at the time working on her dissertation for her PhD, recording every single one of her findings in a notebook that she kept locked in the research laboratory. And this fucking notebook disappeared. Clearly, Nancy is distraught, frantically trying to locate it. Well, a few days later, she gets this anonymous note, and it said that her precious notebook would be found inside of this random public mailbox. She was able to get the notebook, and she knew that this had to have been Bruce, 100%. It's the only person that would have done this and known where this shit was. So for the next several years, 
she would continue finding random things or having random things done to her, like notes on her car, little things outside of her home, random emails or messages to her lab, and even letters published in the newspapers with these like obscene conspiracy theories and crazy things, and they were signed by her, giving her name and information. Bruce denied any and all of this. And another important thing to know about Bruce Ivins is that one of his psychiatrist got a restraining order against him. That's big. He had multiple fake profiles online, which he pretended on every single one to be a KKG sorority girl. So yeah. Kappa Kappa. <laughs> Seriously. And on, Bruce. one more thing to add up on top of all of this is that the FBI investigators found that he had several P.O. boxes in various places that he visited and used often. And P.O. boxes are not cheap. No. No. I'll tell you that. We know that for positive. At night, Bruce would sneak out of bed with his wife, leave the home for hours going God knows where, different places, and then coming back before she woke up in the morning, which FBI agents literally observed him doing while they watched him. So now let's go back to what they found while watching Bruce. Two or so days after the search warrant of his home was executed late at night, Bruce walked outside with a trash bag. Took it to the trash can, which was out by the street because the next morning it was trash day. Pretty typical, no big deal. He had done this already and it's common, of course, take your trash out. But unlike the other trips he had taken to the trash bin that day, this one was different. After dumping the bag in the bin, instead of casually just walking back inside the home as he had done countless times before, he stopped. He scanned the entire street, his yards, his surroundings before walking back in. What he didn't know was just a few yards away from him, standing extremely still, not even breathing, was an FBI agent watching him as he did this. I bet that FBI agent was shitting his fucking pants. I know. He's scanning. Don't let him see me. Don't oh, my God. Well, what's he going to do? Run back out to the trash can and say, oh, just kidding. Yeah. I, I'm going to I have to stop after you don't do finish this little segment because I have to tell you all the craziest shit I learned. The only reason to act like this is if whatever is in that bag, you are nervous about being found. As soon as Bruce went inside into bed, the FBI agent that watched this immediately grabbed the bag and brought it back to be sifted through. In the trash was a book about codes. It was called An Eternal Golden Braid by Godel Eschelbach. This book broke down coding and specifically discussed using bolded letters to embed messages. If you're on our Instagram, then you know that this looks and sounds familiar. The letters in the anthrax envelopes each contained a message with specific letters bolded or capitalized. In the Death to America letters, the letters A and T were always bolded. In the FBI, they had speculated from the beginning that these letters could have some hidden message, but they really were just unable to figure out what it was until the book. The same letters A and T are used in DNA codons, which we know Bruce is obsessed with fucking science. Along with A and T, other bolded letters translated into F N Y. And one thing about Bruce, one thing the FBI knew from talking about him was that he fucking hated New York. FNY, fuck New York. Damn. Damn. Okay, let me tell you all this is insane. I'm doing research on this other case, right? And we had done this well before I started my second set of research. And in the second set of research, they, ex and I knew this, like I've, I've known it, but I've never had it described in this way. And yeah. it shook me so fucking hard, okay? Three days before trash day, 
you know, your trash can, you just cleaned out, you went to the grocery store, so you had to clean out the rotted shit in your fridge that you forgot about that's been in the back corner for too long and all the jars of pickles that only I need had to one do pickle. That. That's what I need to do too. Mine's the pickles bad. specifically. <laughs> no, one hundred percent. I have one fucking olive sitting in a huge jar in there. Like, just eat the damn olive. Why is there one left? I know. So either way, so you're taking out all that shit, right? And it's like three days before trash day. What do you do? You take the trash can because you filled it all up and you don't want that food smelling inside. You put it in your trash bin, whether that's behind your gate, whether that's in your garage, whether that's on the side of your house, and you put it in there, right? Fine. So now it's trash day. The night before, maybe they come before 9 a.m. So you got to take it down to the road. When that trash can that the city uses or the county, whoever your service is, is sitting at the top of your house, like when it's in hiding, (laughs) when it's in hiding, that is your property. The second you drag that trash can to the end of your property to be picked up, even though it's technically still on your property, it's just at the end of your property, you have surrendered all rights to it. Wow. I mean, that's how they got Kohlberger. That's how they get so many people. I mean, because of trash, you know, they follow people around and same for, oh God, the DJ and Christy Mirak from Pennsylvania, Lancaster. That case is same. Saw him drinking the cup, picked it up, swabbed it. Because you, whenever you throw something away and see, like when you throw it away in public, surrendering, surrendering, you're, you're it. surrendering, surrendering it when you throw it away in public. But what's that little mark on your house? So like they could perform as many search warrants as they want to, but they can have your trash whenever the fuck they want your trash. Right. That is so crazy to me. Makes sense. And, it, and it, you know what it makes more sense of? That's why that the waste management systems in the United States specifically have never upgraded. They've never changed because the second, if there was a different way that we went about it, it would be harder to have access to that trash. Okay, so investigators had almost every single thing that they needed against Bruce to make an arrest for sure, but maybe not enough to make a sealed airtight conviction. They needed something else, something more powerful. They needed a confession. And the best way that they could think about getting one was by conducting a sting operation. So one of the secret shares, I think it was like three women over like a period of time. One of them had been interviewed by the FBI and they needed one of these people to work with them. Now, she was adamant that there was no way that Bruce was involved. She was not helping, da, 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 da. But then the agents presented her with something jarring, to say the least. It was proof that Bruce had hacked into her computer, obtained every single password, and had been logging into her computer as her, sending messages, reading messages, emails, so on and so forth. I did not notice her schedule like that. too. So finally, she starts believing them about this dark side of Bruce that she had never seen before. No one had ever seen before. And she agrees to go and try and get a confession out of him because she was the woman that he had sent most of his damning emails to the one where he had spoken about these episodes. This woman was their key. She comes out the fucking gate when he sits down at this coffee shop that they met at and pretty much is like, hey, I'm worried about you, about that paranoia email and all of that. And Bruce is like, I'm sorry. I never remember sending those emails. Like it happens when I'm at the end of my episode realizing everything. I don't remember leaving my home in the middle of the night. I'll just wake up and be like, oh my God, did I leave? Here are my keys. And nothing after the tingles. Like from the time that the tingles start, he blacks out and can't recall anything. And he calls that version of him like how BTK called the dark side. Bruce called it crazy Bruce. So then she asks straight up, I'm wondering if it could have been you that sent those letters. And he says 
verbatim back to her. I cannot recall doing anything like that. And then follows it up by saying, quote, the only thing I know for sure is that in my right mind, I would never hurt anyone, end quote. Never saying no. June 9th, 2008, Bruce Ivins is brought in for a voluntary interview with the FBI and he had his attorney with him. And the main interviewer was FBI agent Vince Lisi. And there was a few others also in the room, but it wasn't as many as like the 20 that had been in there with Paul. Tons of preparation had gone into this interview with Bruce. I'm talking like the FBI brought in psychiatrists, behavioral scientists, negotiation teams, and mapped out the best way for Bruce's brain to be interviewed. They wanted to to let Bruce know that they had him without saying it outright, hoping that he would break down and just come clean. They knew the trigger words and the tones that needed to be used, as well as like the flow of the conversation, how it needed to go in order to get this result. FBI agent Lisey came out the gates asking, what's your deal with women? Dead ass. KKG, Nancy, your psychiatrist, your secret share. And Bruce basically cuts him off and says, oh, 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 it's not a deal. It's an obsession, not an interest. Okay. Okay. Doesn't really make it better that it's an obsession. But... I guess he's self-aware. Yeah. And they brought up the code books for the KKG rituals. They were like, bro, are you serious? And then they use that as a segue to be like, so you're interested in codes? He's like, no, not really. And then Agent Lisi slides across the code on book all the way. The one that Morgan talked about being recovered out of the trash can. Eternal sunshine or something like that. Something like that. Right after, they give him the official code that was found in the anthrax letter showing him the A and the T. And he says, you know, do you know what this comes out to? And Bruce is like, what? No. And he says, oh, FNY, fuck New York. But that wasn't the biggest bombshell that they dropped, even though Bruce looked like a deer in the headlights. Lastly, they dropped the bombshell about RMR 1029, asking him, how was it that he messed up this sample? A scientist who did this almost daily for 36 years. How did you mess this up? When they asked the scientists at USAMRA to submit samples for testing after narrowing down the morphology of the AIM strain, these scientists were supposed to prepare two samples. One would go to the repository and one was sent to Paul Keem's DNA genomic laboratory, whatever it's called. I keep forgetting. The sample that was at Paul Keem's laboratory stayed there for the next four years because the FBI never had asked them to get rid of it. And therefore, Paul's like, I'm going to cover my ass. I'm going to keep these. This is a, a uh, what we think. Investigation. Is a, yeah, an attack. And these samples, the one in the repository and the one in the laboratory, which I think was actually in Arizona or New Mexico, one of the two. Yeah. They should have been the same samples. It should have been swapped from the same source that these scientists were using, but they weren't. Bruce deliberately had submitted two different samples and he did this. He was able to do this by using the wrong test tubes. So when he went to submit the sample to the repository, they denied it. They're like, man, come on. Like, that's the wrong test tube. Follow the protocol next time. Like, are you fucking We've been doing me? this every like, fucking day. Go back, re recollect it and submit it correctly. But this is when Bruce dodged a bullet. The second time around that he went to submit that sample to the repository, he had added something to it so that it would come back as a negative match and that he would be cleared, which is what did happen. But the first original sample at Paul Keem's laboratory, because they didn't deny that one, that was supposed to be destroyed, but never was, 
it was a match, coming back as the parent sample RMR-1029. Even though 14 other people had access to that beaker of RMR-1029, Bruce had more than enough evidence to narrow that 14 down to him because he had submitted two separate different samples. They had him. 18 days after the interview with the FBI on July 27, 2008, Bruce Ivins was found unconscious at his home. He was rushed to Frederick Memorial Hospital and two days later on July 29th, he was pronounced dead. It was determined that his death was due to an overdose on Tylenol with codeine and appeared to be an intentional suicide. No autopsy was ever ordered, though, because allegedly the state medical examiner deemed it to be unnecessary because of his toxicology reports proving that it was Tylenol, codeine, therefore an intentional suicide. It later came out that his death was actually the result of liver and kidney failure. That was his cause of death after he had purchased two bottles of not Tylenol and co- with codeine, but Tylenol PM, which I guess there's a big difference between the two. I'm not really positive. The reason why he died two days later is because he was put on life support and he potentially could have survived with a liver transplant. However, his family declined to put him on the liver transplant list and he was just removed from life support because they were honoring his wishes of what he wanted for ending his life. Some people believe that it was not him and that he was not guilty. The only reason he took his own life was not because he was guilty, but instead because of the pressure that he felt from the media and the FBI. The FBI to this day is adamant that Bruce Ivins was the person who sent the anthrax letters. However, most of those who worked with Bruce and his family and friends do not believe that he was involved and instead he was framed, resulting in him taking his own life due to the pressures put on the FBI by higher ups to get this case closed. There's a few other things that we need to talk about. So we need to talk about the postal office stuff. Let's go ahead and start with that. Okay. Basically, there are and there's a lot of suing going on. Stephen Hatfield, who was literally their prime suspect, who they slandered and who wasn't even a suspect. He was a person of interest, like slandered his name, ruined everything about his person, like everything about him, personal life, business life, everything. He sued the shit out of everyone yeah i'm pretty positive he won i know for a fact actually he so. won and then to this day there there has been in the past and there's still an ongoing civil suit against government postal office i guess postal office for these postal workers i mean the two that we mentioned that died as a direct result of the anthrax inhalation from the original samples before the testing was done there by the hazmat suits even though there were still people working in there without hazmat suits on for 10 days there was additional probably like 15 to 20 other postal workers that worked in these different various offices that died as a result of their anthrax exposure and I would say I would beg to differ, not hundreds, but close to hundreds that are still dealing hundreds. with respiratory issues to this day from my new anthrax exposure. Exactly. And the with um, no sort of compensation, nothing, healthcare aid like we know if I had to guess, yes, postal workers are a governmental job, but we know that postal workers probably get paid minimum wage, if not just a little bit above minimum right, wage. Right. And they're left from this attack. They are left with hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical bills medical and bills, treatment that they're either missing work because of being so ill that they're either not able to receive or that they're going into debt because of. Right. And so many people died as like, I mean, this was, so many postal workers died. And what's so crazy is like any time that there was something detected like at the NBC, ABC, New York Post, like the that. Boca, 
that within two fucking hours, everybody was out being tested and it was like quarantined, broken down, being scrubbed down. Meanwhile, postal workers who are literally on the front lines. Right. And they knew they knew that these letters, every letter goes through a post office. Exactly. Specifically the one from Senator Daschle. They had traced back within what, a day? Yeah. So quick. Within 24 hours to that, po- the Naval, I think it's called the Naval Post yeah. Office in D.C. They had traced it back. They knew that is where it came from. They know how these machines work. And they knew that. If, you know, there's two bystanders out, Otilly and... Oh, Kathy. If they were able to get infected or inhale it just by being a a passerby, these people that are handling, physically touching the mail, breathing in the air that this mail is being thrown around in, like fucking rapid speeds, that they would have been also poisoned by anthrax. Poisoned by anthrax. And no one gave a fucking shit about these people. What's so crazy is when you literally look at all the original media footage. Okay, so if you go back and if you go, and I 100% we both say, even though it was just like the end of us, basically watching the documentary Anthrax Attacks. First off, there is so much time dedicated to the postal workers, which is so well-deserved. And that's like, why we kind of took a step back. We didn't want to take their words. Like you truly should hear it from their mouths. Like they, the fact that they were giving this platform to be able to speak mm-hmm. their case was so And phenomenal. a lot of them was the family members of the postal workers who- The majority passed. of them, there was only like two that were actually working. The rest were the- the Deceased uh, de- from the The families poison. of the deceased, the surviving uh, and you know, family members. And they were told, it's okay to go. It's okay to it's work. It's all good. You're good. You're good. Meanwhile, they're, you know, you look at this footage from the time that this is all going on and you see all the postal workers that are in work that day and acting, It's they're being told to act like everything's completely fucking normal. The majority of them are black people. And then you look at everyone in these offices that are being evacuated and being tested immediately. White. White. And also the postal workers, like we said, primarily were black individuals. They did not get tested until they shut it down. They were not allowing them to get tested for exposure until well after they shut the fucking thing down. Yeah. And the reason why the postmaster general or whoever the fuck it was originally that was like, we're not shutting down. The quote was something, some bullshit like, we're not going to let the terrorists win. Yeah. Something. So like we're going to kill more of our people. And I also think there was this hidden agenda of not shutting down the main postal office in D.C. where governmental mail comes through because mm-hmm. they were, I think, I think I had an agenda that they were probably trying to get another one in. Yeah. Not, not trying like, to figure out where it came from. Obviously they yeah. had more restrictions in place, but like they wanted another one that they could possibly track down to help them solve the case. So I think it was out of fucking ignorance, ignorance. that they were like, well, we need, we need more. Like we don't have enough evidence. We don't have enough physical things here that we could test, but maybe if there was one more, like I think there was some sort of hidden agenda for 100%. them to keep it open. Well, I think either a hidden agenda for the anthrax case or for the purpose of communications during 9-11 because, yeah. you know, we had to strip it back. Like cell phones, you know, pretty new at the time mm-hmm. and pagers and shit. Phone lines all over our country were shut down because people were trying to call and figure out if their family members were right. okay. And at a time like that, they're going to be hesitant to stop the number one source of receiving information to right. each other in early 2000s. I mean, think about when this timeline is. I mean, this is insane. Like, yeah. So, I mean, I almost would be more understanding if they were like, we couldn't, we couldn't risk shutting down this specific 
postal office. So we put them all in hazmat suits. Right. Because we couldn't risk to shut it down because we needed information to be flowing constantly because of everything that was going on with 9-11. Right. And it's not like a fucking package that's going to the damn White House is going through the regular ass postal service. These are letters. These are fucking letters. Okay. And like, trust me, if you need to get something to the White House pronto, you can get it to the White House because you, you ha- clearly have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. You're going to send like a little love letter, like whatever. You can send it through the Postal Service. It just makes just no sense. Up and I'm, it's so fucked up. It's just another example of systematic racism fucking blatantly in your face that has been around and still continues to linger yep. and affect people. It's just bullshit. So I hope they all win their civil suit. Yeah, I think the majority of them have won a portion of it, like individually suing. But if they can have like an entire, if and I'm not really, I know for a fact at the end of the documentary. I mean, you think we know? We watch it probably what 1,500 fucking times. Yeah, they. I almost am positive that they have already done a form of a suit, but with more information that is being released from the vault. Basically, they're able to form a better and more like powerful a class suit, action. a class action suit. So I think there's more that's going on with it. Next, so like a few years ago, I can't remember what the exact date was. They destroyed all of the evidence connected to the anthrax attacks. The only pieces of evidence I I believe are the letters that were able to be recovered. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven letters that were able to be recovered. Well, they did that because their prime suspect was now dead. Oh, baby, they sold them to the Smithsonian. They're in a Smithsonian And boom, they don't need it anymore. Their case is solved in their eyes and to America's eyes. Right, but the the issue is, is that, and I think Paul Keem, that was Keem, I believe that he said it the best. He was like, this is like trying to say that... If, if we were to take this exact case and turn it into a, a murder situation, like with a with a gun as the weapon and what they're doing in the situation, according to Paul, is in terms of the science and everything that's involved, basically saying that, yeah, Bruce did it because his fingerprints are on the gun. But there are also 13 other people's fingerprints on that same gun. Right. There's no way to definitively say it's not like we have DNA of Bruce on those letters, which I feel like if we would have probably kept it, probably we'd could. be able to, but they're not going to test it because they don't want to be fucking wrong. Right. So. So do you think he did it? I, I think that if it was him, then it was the crazy Bruce. I Me don't too. Like saying that, but his, his dark side, his dark side. I think it was him, but I also think like to explain, you know, like his heavy hour logs during that time, like he was, obsessed like obsessed. he was obsessed like how he says he gets obsessive in a conversation he right. gets obsessive in everything women anything especially right. science that he was obsessed and he wanted to do his due diligence as a you know governmental lab employee and like like on his defense so I think that could explain his hours I think that maybe he had been spooked by the fact that you know he had submitted those samples thinking like I'm innocent I didn't do this like here are my regular mm-hmm. samples because if you were guilty why would you still submit one sample that was your original why wouldn't you dilute or add something to both samples so I think that he had submitted it and then I think he went back there and I think he like came out of this trance and he was like well what if it was me and I don't right, know right and he realized, so I need to I need to change this what if it was me right I think the FBI has in the government have put so much pressure on this case that 
no one's going to see. I, I don't I know. I think it was so motherfucked from the beginning. From the beginning. It's not because of any individual person doing one singular action that fucked it all up. It was just because, and you, you do have to be understanding like about this, like 9-11 had just fucking happened. Right. And was, this was not this was not priority. normal. This was not normal. This was the first bioweapons attack. Mm-hmm. And we had just got on U.S. soil fucked. Like, yeah. there was so much more that needed to be done at that point in time. And I'm sure that they did their best to put their top agents on this. But there was plenty of other things that needed to be looked at at the time. Mm-hmm. And though that's hard to say, but like when you're looking at it on the scale of these letters in the mail with a bioweapon versus someone flying planes into New York City skyscrapers right? and crashing in fields in Pennsylvania and going on to the Pentagon. Like, what the fuck are you going to look at? Right. You know, I don't think that that's fair. But do I think in terms of like priority that pl- probably played a role? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, do I think Bruce did it? Man, I don't know. I I, I don't think, think he was in his right mind if he did. I don't think he was in his right mind if he did. But on the flip side of this, the only thing that if he was in his right mind in this delusional side was a version of him pleading an insanity plea. He was trying to find a faster way to get another vaccine that he was working on approved. Right. Thinking that for he, his own agenda for his own agenda. And maybe it just got fucked up in the timeline like he had already like dropped those letters off to be shipped at a certain time and then yeah it 9-11 happens and five days later right. like these were patents so if right. this vaccine were to get approved he would be he'd make billions he made millions of dollars yeah and so maybe doing that behind the shield maybe of, he was a co-partner so right. he was the other guy exactly so maybe 9-11 really Maybe it wasn't the ship between 9-11, but he thought, like, if I send it out after this happened, like, no one's going to be looking into this anthrax case. So I can come out as the hero in this. I just got an idea. What? Should I say it on mic? Yeah, go ahead. I'll take it out if it's not good. The co the co-patent, the yeah. other person, what if he knew that his vaccine would eventually be approved? So he sent the anthrax letters, had it all pinpointed to Bruce because he wanted to be the OG patent, a, a federal yeah. uh, accusation or like what a, an arrest for a terroristic attack would extremely take you off of a fucking patent. Yeah, 100%. And you would not receive any money. So he would then be the sole benefactor yep. of that vaccine all by money greed. Because Bruce, to me, doesn't seem like a money guy. No, He seems no. like, I love my job. I love... His wife runs a daycare out of the home. Like it's, you know, they just are happy. So what if it was... The other person on the vaccine or someone else involved or fucking big pharma for all we know. No, literally. I, you, <laughs> you know what? You can't put anything past me. Like, I, I'm done at this point. Big pharma, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Get the fucking Adderall shorted, sorted out down here, by the way, while we're fucking at it. But yeah, I just, I don't know. I think there are so many things that can go into it. And it, with it living in the shadow, literally the title of that, there's so much that's lost. Yep. And so much I will never make it out. And so many things that were overlooked because of that. Yeah. So but all evidence, I mean, it does point to Bruce. Yeah. All the evidence that's been presented, all points of view, Bruce. But let's put it like this. You, we can make the finger point at anybody. Mm-hmm. And by we, I mean the FBI. I'm now a part of the FBI. <laughs> um, we, you can, I would love to know what government officials are thinking about our Google search history. What this is mine. What is anthrax? Does it how does anthrax kill? Anthrax to the government. Anthrax laboratory. Like I'm not 9-11. Anthrax. (laughs) (laughs) And then and then wait till you hear my second case. You're gonna be like, holy fuck, we're definitely flagged. 
No, me too. No, definitely. Someone's going to pull up on our fucking house and knock, knock, knock. What We're the fuck like, are you Can you just wait till next week? Like, are you the IRS or are you the FBI? Who is Hopefully it? the second one. Yeah. Oh my God, it's the second one. <laughs> what do you need? My receipts or do you need my, my fucking search Yeah, history? it was a karaoke machine. Mind your goddamn business. <laughs> Shut the fuck up and sit right there. Because it's a write-off. I mean, literally. We but, went live with that karaoke machine once. Yeah. Tomorrow. Just, like, this is all We're about to. We don't have a karaoke machine, even though it's from the like movie. What's it called? Yeah. Everywhere, every everything, all at once, yeah. whatever, something but, like that. But yeah, that that's how I feel about it. I don't know. I truly think that could there have been the do is Bruce maybe the only person that they had any sort of evidence pointing towards? Yeah, and did they just fucking ride that wave so they could close this case and move the fuck on? Probably, maybe. Or um, it's some big fucking conspiracy or he actually did it. So. Right. In my opinion, though, they claim that this is a closed case. You didn't get a conviction. Technically not closed. And did you even have truly enough cause to get a good conviction? Right. So I wish we could see how that would have played out in court. I feel really fucking awful for his family. Yeah. W- either way. If it same reason, same way I feel towards Dennis Rader's family yep. as BTK. Like either way. Damn. And that's just a really shitty reality so that's, that's anthrax. anthrax thank god we did it and we're off Mike. we're never high goodbye again. love you bye